Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. We knew that our young people would be out there to defend their borough, and it was therefore vital that the community was out there as well. Our last episode was dedicated to discussing the history of the Battle of Cable Street, Seeing the stunning mural that depicts and remembers the battle was such a moving experience that I had to find out more. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest you check it out first. 85 years ago, locals from Tower Hamlets and surrounding areas took to the streets to protest against fascism, as the leader of the British Union of Fascists, Sir Oswald Mosley, descended upon the borough with thousands of his Black Shirt's followers. 85 years on, on the 4th of October, we see the coming together of residents, community and faith leaders to make certain we never forget the events of that day. But what makes this battle special? Why has it been deemed worthy of remembrance? Father Alan Green is chair of the Tower Hamlets Interfaith Forum and was among the faith leaders who gathered outside the mural this year. He's my guest today. Chapter 1. The Battle Goes On The Battle of Cable Street is part of the East End's DNA. It is the symbol of what makes us such a tolerant and cohesive community. We shall not forget it and everything it stands for. John Biggs, the Mayor of Tower Hamlets. You could go your whole life without ever hearing about the Battle of Cable Street, or even stumbling across the mural, but the significance of this one event echoes through the ages and needs to be remembered. Of course, it was consequential at the time. It was an important moment that showcased the coming together of a community standing up to its oppressors. But what's perhaps less obvious is how the battle remains significant to us, even today. It represents a very symbolic moment in our history that, that is replicated in a number of generations uh, from, from the times that the, the Huguenots came here, both in positive ways and in negative ways. There is a sense of the character of Tower Hamlets that is focused upon the Battle of Cable Street and about how we all stand together. And we know we stand together because of that image and that moment. And we can relate that then to other times, particularly when the English Defence League or Britain First or any other group tries to come here, but also to, to a more general sense of the cohesion in Tower Hamlets that we've always been a place of immigration and we have always welcomed new immigrants and we've always got on well together. And that, that is referred to as a good thing. Um, but it also is used to cover up the fact that that's not always the case at all and that we can very easily um, fragment that our, our sense of unity is, is very fragile and has to be worked at. And so telling the story is really important, but also telling the story in a way that it, it doesn't just become a coverall for us because that doesn't work. It's important to remember that there, there was not a united sense in 1936 that this was the right thing to do. The, the Labour Party opposed it, the Board of Deputies opposed it, the, the local council opposed it, 
it wasn't that everybody stood together and that that happens again and again in particularly the 2011 visit of the um, English Defence League here, that same battle of, of principle happened before the English Defence League arrived, with the council and the police being very clear that we should all keep off the streets and leave it to them to deal with. And there being real opposition to, to us organising a, a community response on the streets. So the, the same problems happen, as well as the same sense of unity happening. Almost as if, without wishing to romanticise this, almost as if the battle is, is ongoing and, and needs to continue to uphold what happened on that day. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there is a, a real lesson to be learned from what happened at the end of the war that is largely overlooked, that mostly started organising again, that in 1946 he was organising rallies to reform the British Union of Fascists and Jewish soldiers returning from the war, and particularly those who had seen what had happened to the Jews in Europe and who had lost family members, organised themselves to oppose that growth of, of the fascists in Britain again. And for three years, they went into battle. It was very violent. And they decided that it, it could not be a matter of words, that after what they had seen and experienced, and the only way to stop the fascists growing was to take them on headfirst. And for, for three years, I mean, it's a group started, it's called the 43 group, because there were 43 of them who met together in a sports centre in, in Hampstead after four of them had, had experienced a fascist rally. And within a year, there'd become a thousand people um, across Britain who were opposing um, mostly here and in Manchester in other cities. And it, it took three years of fighting to stop mostly. And we, we don't remember that because we, we have a, a national story of how we defeated the Nazis. So we don't like to remember that there was an attempt to give them rebirth here in this country in 1946. And of course, that was then replicated in 1962 with Jews remembering that the 43 and reforming in a new generation to oppose the, the fascists meeting in Ridley Road again, where they, they had mostly had tried to organise rallies back in the 40s, um, which is now on the television in the Ridley Road series. Yes, it's, it's fascinating to reflect on the amount of times it comes up as an issue. It wasn't at all about that one day in October 85 years ago. It's a, it's a habitual issue that comes up and each time it does, the community stands strong. And I take a huge amount of, of pride and hope from that initial act of civil disobedience. And I think it's important to call that out because it was, yeah. um, but it was so much more than just protecting neighbors. Of course, it was about protecting that, but there was a sense, particularly from Europe, that fascism was significantly on the march and the provocation of the route choice that Mosley and his black shirts had was a very deliberate choice, quite naturally, given the, the Jewish community in the East End and the concentration, the housing concentration was, I, I think the census says something like it was about at least a dozen times higher 
in Stepney in that part of London than it was in some of the surrounding boroughs. It was much, much more than what happened on that day, wasn't it? It was a statement about fascism in general. Yep. Um, and particularly about anti-Semitism. I mean, it, it's interesting that earlier in, in 1904, the, the MP for, for Stepney wrote a book called The, the Alien Immigrant, in which he said that all the previous waves of immigrants here had uh, assimilated into local culture. But the difference with the Jews is that they were not doing that. And that east of Whitechapel is a foreign land. And if we don't act, we will cease being British here. He was a Zionist. He, he was really keen that the Jews got their own state and that they got out of, of Tower Hamlets. Um, so he is much venerated <laughs> as a Zionist. Um, but he only did that because he didn't want him here. I mean, that language was, was there then. And the, the language is exactly the same as Tommy Robinson, who said that unlike all the previous waves of immigration, which included the Jews, the problem with the Muslims is they won't assimilate and they're taking our, our land away from us. It's just the, the same narrative again and again. Chapter two, the power of community. Often we cling to lazy narratives, ready to jump on the bandwagon if it aligns with our views of the world, no matter how patchy the evidence. Though all this does is fracture society, creating rifts and divisions, these narratives become self-perpetuating. If you say that someone or a group of people are a certain way, perhaps violent or antisocial, then people will only ever notice those behaviours. They stop seeing the good. In some cases, the accused start believing the narrative themselves. On the flip side, a community together holds tremendous power, as the Battle of Cable Street has taught us. So that's why Father Allen is determined to change the narrative. He wants people to celebrate the incredible mix of diversity in his community instead of fearing it. Tower Hamlets as, as a whole has the largest Muslim population in the country in terms of proportion. We were the first borough to be Muslim majority, but it is incredibly varied. So there is that, that large Bangladeshi and Somali population, but then other Muslims from, from other parts of the world as well. There's a large East European group here. We're on the fringes of a, a large Chinese community, more in Hackney, but with numbers here as well, as well as African-Caribbean um, population from immigration from, from the 50s in particular. And the roots of those different communities all go back a lot longer because of us being so close to the, the Port of London. So the establishment of a mosque here came not out of waves of immigration, but because of, of the needs of, of sailors and others who, who had settled here. And more recently, about rich and poor too. Tower Hamlets was always a, a poor area, Bethnal Green, my own parish particularly so, but it is now very varied. So my parish and surrounding parishes have some of the highest child poverty in the country, but at the same time, we have areas that have in incredibly wealthy residents who are working in the city and in Canary Wharf uh, with a very high level of education. So it, it is a very, very mixed picture here. And that is both a strength and a real vulnerability, because it's very easy for resentments and fears 
to topple over into to identifying who is responsible. And that might be the Muslims, it might be the wealthy, it might be gays and lesbians. Those vulnerabilities are very, very easily pulled apart here. And we're seeing that at the moment, I think, particularly with the issues of relationship and sex education policies in schools that make at least some of the Muslim population feel more overlooked and unrespected and make the LGBT plus communities and groups also feel very vulnerable because of of what is being said about this teaching, particularly in in recently here because of a homophobic murder that, that happened recently. So those tensions around very easily pulling the community in different directions. Let's stick with education for a moment. When I visited the mural last month as part of preparation for for this episode, I was struck by a recent visit of school children. And there was uh, a notice that had been left on the railings just in front of the mural that talked about the reaction that the school children had had to the mural as they learned about the events that happened on that day. And they'd asked themselves a very simple question, which was, what would they stand in the street and say no to? It's not a short list, which at first I thought, actually, that's very depressing because there are so many problems with the world. And then I saw, actually, no, this is a huge source of comfort and hope that this generation of children who will inherit the world that we have left them are so prepared to stand in the street and say no to so many things. It gave me a huge amount of hope. It's a very long list. It includes all of the things that you just said. It includes inequality, it includes equal pay. It includes um, homophobia, sexism, racism, all of those things. And I was struck by how powerful that was. Have you, have you seen that list for yourself? Yes, um, we, we have our own church school here which is is in a a federation with with another church school in in Stepney. That one is largely Muslim. Ours is less so. Both church schools, though, uh, and in learning to live with one another in the school, of learning to appreciate the different cultures, traditions and faiths that are there, there is a real sense amongst those, those young children about the need to be able to live together in peace and and respecting one another. And it it is a very, very strong feeling within the school, in each of them. I'm I'm really impressed by that. They are young children, they they have a lot to learn, but out of their experience in the school, and the, the Christian values are there not to turn them all into believing Christians, but are there in order to to encourage those those values of of mutual understanding and of koinonia, good Christian word about community. And it is a very, very strong, positive feeling amongst those young people. And I mean, it's worth talking about the visits of the English Defence League in, in this respect, because on each of the three occasions, two when they did turn up and one when they didn't, It was really important that we had a community presence on the streets because whatever the police said, we knew that our young people would be out there. We knew that they would not take the the police line of we will look after you, that they would be there to defend their borough. 
And it was therefore vital that the community was out there as well to protect those young people, because otherwise, um, with the, the excitement and energy that was there, it was highly likely that young people would end up getting arrested. And in, in that sense, the English Defence League would have won, because that's what would have been seen. Young Muslim men getting arrested. And, and we needed to be there in order to give an overall sense of the whole of the borough responding and to give confidence to those young people that we were all in this together and that we, we were doing everything that was possible to prevent the EDL from having either a march through the borough or in being able to, to win the message by saying, look, we're there and there, there is no, no community response. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three, and we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and then send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on the writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter three, the Interfaith Forum. One event can mark a place forever, forever tarring its future with the same brush especially when the narrative of that event allows people to justify their bigoted views of the world. Perspectives of all future events become warped, obfuscating the truth. For Tower Hamlets, escaping its troubled past is no mean feat. Too often we try to look at life through the lens of emotion, disregarding rationality. As the undercover economist Tim Harford told us in Series 2, we must step back sometimes and use statistics to inform a more clear and calm opinion of the world. Father Allen hopes the Interfaith Forum will help achieve that sense of clarity. The Forum began not as a talking shop, um, and we've never wanted to be a talking shop. We've not wanted to be a place to debate philosophy. We've wanted to be a, a place where, where faith can take its place as part of the, the positive change in Tower Hamlets to look after all the residents who are here. It emerged out of the Lawrence inquiry and its consequences. As a result of that, there was a group set up, the Race and Hate Crime Interagency Forum, that looked at the range of hate crimes here. And race was very well analysed and understood, so we could break down what was happening, what was being reported, so that we could respond in a, a detailed way to what we understood was happening with race hate here. But faith hate was not being broken down into faith components. So right. an incident might get reported and labelled as faith because someone involved in it said this was because I'm a Muslim or whatever. But the statistics did not include the faith of the people involved. <laughs> so you saw how many uh, happened each quarter and it was all supposition. Was this all Muslims? Um, and the general supposition was, was that Muslims were victims of hate crime. And that was dangerous without a proper analysis, because we knew churches were much at risk as, as mosques were. 
So we called a meeting of faith leaders and very quickly got behind figures into to narratives and people talking about how you, you can be vulnerable if you have a distinctive faith badge, such as my dog collar. And our buildings were vulnerable to, to graffiti and to damage. And we quickly moved on to a discussion about how our young people um, are disaffected in, in the area of high poverty. And we're using faith as a tool of, of that um, unhappiness. But it wasn't particularly because they were anti a faith. It's because they were unhappy and had nothing to do. And when so perhaps a churchyard that have become a local park now. And so the church was there. So breaking Jesus off the crucifix was something to do. Just before the Olympic Games, um, there were a series of riots in late 2011 after um, Mark Duggan was killed. And those riots spread across the country. And the narrative at the time was that everybody was protesting. And I believe that a lot of what happened in the early local area to the shooting was protest. But what you just said is, is very clearly the other end of the narrative, that actually up in Manchester, for example, you know, 200 and something miles away from, from Tottenham, they were just bored and they had nothing necessarily to do. It was just an act of, well, okay, let's join this because there isn't anything else to do. They're not the same thing and what you're talking about in terms of faith hate it's vital that we break it down isn't it because the faith hate i mean hate is such a broad word but faith hate what does that actually mean and what do those statistics tell us they probably don't tell us anything unless we break it down so are you now able to to break that those statistics down into those component parts yeah yeah we are it's still difficult because faith is is a more difficult landscape to navigate than race there is um, within our culture there is a hesitancy about knowing how to to deal with faith and how to respond to faith issues positive or negative and the forum then was an attempt to address those issues of young people together and to find ways in which we could make faith a positive tool within the community rather than that available tool of negativity. And that's been the rationale ever since. So it, it has been um, practical stuff. What do we do together that we get to know one another better, that we understand one another's faith better, and that we can together uh, open the doors of, of our different places of worship figuratively so that faith is an available tool within, within the community. And being able to provide navigation within the area of faith has been a vital part of that. When I was at the mural, there was a photographer there and I went over to talk to him and he was from Japan and he, he said, I'm very sorry, my English isn't, uh, isn't good enough. But he came back about 20 minutes later with the group that he was, I don't know whether it was a a tourist group but he came back and he was photographing the mural because he, he it looked interesting to him and then when their guide was translating what it says on the sign on the notice board um, in front of the mural there was a beautiful reverence among the group and one of the group then took 
another member of the group and they disappeared and they came back about five minutes later with flowers and they put the flowers there and as a group they all bowed at the mural and then they disappeared and and i was d- just blown away by by that um it, it's not on at least it's not on my tourist route it's you know you don't see it a lot in, in books but when people do go and they do see it it has a profound impact uh, and I, I just wanted to share that because i thought that was just such a nice moment that that group learned for the first time through their translator what had happened on the spot that they were were stood it, it clearly meant something to them so i wanted to share that that I mean, that raises an important issue for us here which, which is indeed about what is on the tourist route and what is it that tower hamlets is known for um and it is largely negative and the big tours here are the cray tours and the jack the ripper tours right and there is an overall negative sense in the media about Tower Hamlets. We are always responding to it. There was, back about 15 years ago, one of my colleagues was assaulted by two young Bangladeshi men in his churchyard after he went out to ask them to be quiet. And it hit international press. There was a report in a New York newspaper, one of Murdoch's papers, from a journalist who had worked in Wapping previously, saying that the thing about Tower Hamlets was that white people were not safe on the streets. And Melanie Phillips at the same time was talking about London Stan and basing that upon this assault. Um, The reality was that the two Bangladeshi blokes were drunk. They, They weren't engaging in jihad, they were drunk. And when finally, I think they went down for it, when they came out, they went and apologised to the vicar and said, we're really sorry, we were drunk. Um, so I mean, it was an issue, and we do have an issue about unrest and about alcohol and about drugs here. But the ease with which that went through the nation and to America with a completely different narrative is a, a problem for us. And being able to change that, which is not just about taking groups to the mural, but about getting on the front foot and, and having proactive images about Tower Hamlets that are different from that jihad one it, is really important for us. And I, I think at the moment the council are attempting to do that um, in learning from um, how Belfast has re-advertised itself in a way that, that we can get onto that front foot. And, and images like Cable Street, I think, will be part of that change. Well, long may Cable Street remain in our minds and in our hearts. Father Alan Green, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Father Alan for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? One moment in history doesn't define a place. The good and the bad are intertwined, each responsible for creating the personality of a setting or location. In your writing... If you intend to address the dark history of a place, remember its brighter side too. When people are marching in the street, standing up for causes they believe in, don't be content in allowing them to fight on your behalf. Solidarity is power. To make a change, people must come together. Bully the history that you think you know. We forget to mention the post-war attempts to bring back fascism in favour of our national story celebrating the defeat of the Nazis. 
But we must remember that the fight is never over. Oppressive narratives are repeated throughout history and we need knowledge in order to arm ourselves to combat them whenever they rear their ugly heads. And finally, I'd like to consider the question I posed in the last episode. What would it take to bring you out into the streets? What makes you angry? And can you fuel that rage in your next piece of writing? Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. This is our final episode of Series 3, but we will be back in the new year with Series 4. The exploits of adventurer and extreme sports enthusiast Kaz Lander will be a major focus of the new series. We'll be following her journey as she and her partner set out to row over 2,000 miles around the coast of Great Britain. Yes, that is insane. We won't receive any outside help. We will have to carry all of our food, all of our provisions on the boat with us. If there's any bad weather, we'll have to anchor off the coast. We won't go into any marinas. Being a circumnavigation of an island close to land rather than going from point to point, you get a lot of localised weather systems. You get a lot of kind of messy weather. We're going to have to deal with tides and all of this. So our ocean rowing boat, you know, we don't have a sail. We don't have an engine. So if we've got tide and wind against us, we literally cannot row. We will have to anchor up. But I think for me, this one's going to be a much bigger mental challenge. In the meantime, keep an eye out for bonus Behind the Spine content in the lead up to Christmas. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.